0: Hundreds gather around the Fuhrer. He's just delivered another rousing speech, and the time to offer the proper gesticulation in salute has arrived. And hundreds shout, Hail Hitler! All all except one man. You've probably seen this famous picture where in the center of this crowd of people, the only one without his arms extended stands out because he stands alone. The story is actually an interesting one. Uh, The man's name uh, is August, and August had been a member of the Nazi party. However, prior to this particular gathering, he had met a woman named Irma who had become the love of his life. There was just one problem. She was Jewish. What's evident from the picture is that August was a changed man. His heart had been moved in a new direction. And as a consequence, he stood out. And now, all these years later, we look back on the photo, we still see a man standing out, distinct from the world around him. We're in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and that's the main idea of our text in verses 13 through 16. Jesus calls his people, those citizens of his kingdom, we Christians, to stand out as distinct From the world. It's our main idea this morning. Citizens of the kingdom are distinct from the world. And in light of that, I would like to exhort you to live different. The outline is there before you and looks like it's really, really complicated. Trust me, not that bad. Uh, This week's sermon, Lord Willing, will be a little shorter than last week's, but but not short by any normal estimation. I don't want to encourage you too much. Uh, So with that in mind, let's let's pray and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, indeed, what a great privilege it is to gather together as your people, to encourage one another on towards good deeds and love as we raise our voices in song to you, as we confess our sins to you and to one another. Lord, we confess even now that during this worship hour, our hearts have wandered Our thoughts have gone astray. We have not dwelt on that which is lovely and pure and good. Our focus has been distracted. We ask your forgiveness. We thank you that in Christ you are just and merciful, and that indeed you do forgive our sins afresh. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for the grace that you've given to us In your word, we pray that you would give us ears to hear it this morning. What we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, as is our custom, it would be a good thing to get our bearings by considering the context into which we are stepping This morning. Remember, Matthew has made it his ambition to lay out Jesus' credentials as king for us in those first four chapters of his gospel. Jesus is born the king. He's got the right pedigree. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's going to bring that Abrahamic blessing to all the nations. He's born of a virgin. He's named Jesus because an angel of God appeared to his father in a dream and said, you're going to name him Jesus because he's going to take away, he's going to save his people from their sins. Jesus is going to be the long-awaited for Messiah King. Matthew then goes on to show us how Jesus fulfills various prophecies in chapter 2, how Jesus identifies with his people and his anointed king at his baptism, and then he, he shows us how Jesus is the new Adam, He succeeds where Adam fails, where Adam was tempted by the devil and drove humanity into sin. Jesus succeeds. He chooses the cross over a crown. And we see Jesus begin his earthly ministry. Sets up headquarters, not in NYC, but in Nellie's Ford. Not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee. To show that he is a king, not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. And then we read that summary paragraph at the end of chapter four, which it serves as our bookend. Remember, it's it's repeated almost verbatim in chapter nine at the end to show us this material in between. It all belongs together. And we get that summary statement. Matthew tells us what he's going to tell us. It says, Jesus went about teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing. And now we, we come into chapters five through seven and we see just that. Jesus is teaching. We see the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And then eventually we'll get to chapters 8 and 9 and we'll see the works of Jesus as he heals all who come to him. And what we are intended to see there is that Jesus has the power of a king. He has authority. He teaches as one with authority. He heals as one with authority. He has authority over diseases, demons, even death. He has authority to forgive sins. This is some kind of king we are being introduced to, and he brings with him a kingdom. The kingdom of God has already come in the person of Christ. It's broken into history. And I don't want to repeat everything we've talked about, but it is important that we recognize this thing, that the kingdom of God is already here and it's still on its way. We are waiting for the consummation of the kingdom when King Jesus returns to make all things new. And yet at the same time, we recognize that the king rules over the king's people in the king's place right now. The kingdom is present and growing. And the big question that hangs over the whole Sermon on the Mount is this, who's in the kingdom? How do I enter the kingdom of God? We looked at one of those answers as we considered the Beatitudes and it is the poor in spirit. Those who bring nothing in their hands and come to Jesus looking for his mercy and his love. And now we come to a continuation of this description of disciples in verses 13 through 16. But before you look there, I want to point out two things because we can easily mess up the Sermon on the Mount. Two things. First, the Sermon on the Mount is meant to drive us to Jesus. We have a standard held out for us here that we could never rise to the level of. we are meant to, to read the sermon and recognize that we don't have the resources within ourselves to keep this law. We can't make ourselves right with God. So if we read the sermon and think, I have to do all these things to enter the kingdom, well, we've, we've missed the point. We've missed Jesus. We've missed the gospel. The second thing we have to recognize is that this is, while it's meant to drive us to Jesus, this is also a description of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's a description of disciples. This is the way we look when we follow Jesus. And if we get this wrong, what we'll do is go, this standard is so high, it's actually a description of you know, when Jesus returns in his fullness, nobody can live this way, and so it's actually irrelevant for my life. I don't, I don't need to try to live up to this standard. Right? If we make either of those two errors, we're going to miss the richness here. Because what Jesus says is, those who are in my kingdom are those who trust in me. And what Jesus is teaching us is, this is how my people are going to look. All right, background finished. Let's look at the text, verse 13. let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want to bring your attention to uh, just two words at the beginning of verses 13 and 14, and those words are, You are. This is really important. Jesus says, You are salt, you are light. He doesn't say, Try to become salt. Try to become light. That makes a world of difference, doesn't it? Jesus is not calling us to make ourselves something different. He's acknowledging that those who are united to him in faith have already been made different. You see, when we are united to Christ by faith, our fundamental identity is no longer sinner in rebellion against God. No, it moves from being a servant in that kingdom of darkness to being a servant in the kingdom of life. Our, Our fundamental identity now in Christ is son of the Father, citizen in the kingdom of heaven. We are in Christ, and in Christ we have been made new creations. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those who are united to Christ, those poor in spirit, have been made new creations, have been made Christ ambassadors in the world, have been made salt. And light. And so we make God's appeal to all those who do not know Him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, our appeal is this trust in Christ Jesus, submit to Him as your King, give up your self rule, have your sins forgiven, and be adopted into the family of God by faith. You are salt. You are light, church. Keep this in your mind. We will get it so wrong. We will be crushed beneath the weight of these commands if we try to make ourselves salt and light. You are. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Well, let's deal with this warning first. Jesus is giving a warning here, and he's laying before us an absurdity. Salt that's lost its saltiness? Well, you know, I'm not a chemist, but for those of you that have delved into that realm, you'll be able to tell me that sodium chloride does not change its chemical composition. It is what it is. It can't be changed. Salt is salt is salt. So salt that isn't salt, it ain't salt. And so Jesus is, is, is telling them the idea that you would be the salt of the earth, you would consider yourself in the kingdom and not be salty. Not that kind of salty. And not, not be, you know, holily salty. Not, not be righteously salty is an absurdity. And what he's doing is he's getting ready to put his crosshairs on the Pharisees and all those Jewish people who would think that they are in the kingdom by virtue of their ethnicity. What he's saying is that these external and circumstantial factors don't make you a member of the kingdom of God. The only way into the kingdom of God is to trust me, the king. And so it's a warning. He's saying if you think that you're salt, but you ain't salty, They're good for nothing except to be trampled upon under the judgment of God. That's the warning. Now let's look at how exactly we are to be like salt. This is a multifaceted metaphor. It goes in, in many, many different directions because salt in the Bible has all kinds of connections all over the place. We're only going to look at five this morning, but I just I bring this to your attention because sometimes what, what pastors do is they try to pick just one of these and then they focus in on that as if Jesus didn't have all of these things in his mind. He's a pretty good teacher, Jesus. And I think we're supposed to pull on each of these threads all at once. We're supposed to see all of these things in his comment. And so, as one writer said, Andrew Wilson, who I'm going to draw upon a little bit here, he says, if anyone tells you that salt here is only about one thing, by all means, hear them out, but take it with a pinch of salt. He's British, or he would know that we say with a grain of salt. With that, let's look at some of these ways that believers are to be like salt. First, we'll talk about how salt flavors. Salt flavors, this is the one that's most familiar to us in our culture. We put salt on things to make it taste better, right? And it does make everything taste better, right? You want your chips to taste better, you put salt on them. Uh, Butter that's salted is better. You know, you want your meat to, you want to bring out that flavor, you put salt on it. I mean, salt even makes things that you don't think it'll make taste better, taste better. Salted caramel, am I right? That's delicious. It's delicious because of the contrast. And so in one way this illustration is supposed to work for us is to show us that believers, Christians, citizens of God's kingdom, are to live in the world in such a way as to enhance it, as to magnify the Lord's common grace to all of his people, or to bring flavor where there is no flavor, spice up those bland areas of the earth, and to provide a contrast with that which is so normal, or to enhance. Secondly, we see that salt is a preservative, salt preserves. This is the most popular understanding of this text. If usually, if guys are going to teach us one thing, this is the thing. But I got to tell you, this one makes almost the least amount of sense to me because we are not having food salted in the text, but the earth. At any rate, salt is a preservative, and so you could pick up on this image, as many have done throughout Christian history, and recognize that Christians are to be like salt in that they help slow the decay of of a world that's dying apart from the Lord. The image, if you, you want the image, you could think of it like this. But maybe you can go home and do an experiment this afternoon. It's a Sunday afternoon. So um, let's say you want to go fishing. And what I want you to do, you go fishing, and you, you take the fish that you catch and just take it off the reel and, and put it in your pocket. Okay? And then you walk, walk around for a few days and then take that fish back out and and just record your observations, all right? I can see Xavier's interested in this, so he's going to do this for you, Autumn, okay? I'm going to check back in later. Then, you know, the next week, next Sunday, Easter Sunday, go, go fishing again, catch another fish, and then before you put it in your pocket, salt that puppy heavily. When you put it in your pocket, you might smell a little fishy, but what you'll find is after you take it out a few days later, fish isn't rotting as it was the first time. Salt is a preservative. It was the ancient version of a refrigerator. I know it's hard to believe there was life before refrigerators. And Linda was at my, my house this week for dinner, and uh, she was talking about how she one time didn't get in the ice machine part of the refrigerator because she thought, it's like, I don't want to spend the extra money on that. I'll just put the water in the trays and the trays into the, the machine. And I was like, you Neanderthal. <laughs> <laughs> That's... That is crazy talk. And this is how people preserved through they used salt. Likewise, believers are to be salt, preserving that which is good in the world, keeping it from decaying. We also see that salt promises in the Bible. There are a number of places where salt stands in as a symbol of the covenant between God and his people. As a salt brings to the mind of those who follow Christ, those who would have been Jewish, all of God's promises. One of those places that we see it is in Leviticus. And I know every one of you, every time I bring up Leviticus, you're like, man, he's really happy we preached through that book, isn't he? But I'm telling you, it's everywhere. Here we go, Leviticus chapter two, verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. God says over and over again in that passage, hey, when you are putting the offering on the barbecue, don't forget the salt. And it's not because God eats the food and he just really likes things heavily salted. It's because the salt is to bring to mind the people the covenant that God has made with their fathers to bless them, to keep them, to deliver them from their enemies, to be their God and they his people. Likewise, believers in the world, those citizens of the kingdom, are to live in such a way as to be distinct from the world, as we carry with us the promises of God to those who do not know him. We offer to them the hope that is offered in Jesus Christ. Fourthly, we also see in Scripture, most often, which might come as a surprise to you, that salt destroys salt conjures up images of judgment. Wilson writes, This one we find much less appealing, but we can't get away from it. There are more scriptural references to salt being used in judgment or destruction than to any other purpose. We see this image pretty early on in scripture. You remember uh, the Lord is destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And he give, through angels, he gives instruction uh, to Lot's wife, hey, when the fire and the sulfur are falling from the sky, don't turn back and look at it. And, and Lot's wife, she can't help it. She, she turns around to look at Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. And as a result, she is turned into a pillar of salt. Moses warns Israel that if they break God's covenant, their land will be, and I quote, burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout. Wilson's helpful one more time. Salt in the ancient Near East was used to express judgment upon evil. There is a sense in which the church has the same purpose. The very existence of the church, preaching and living out the gospel, proclaims judgment against the enemies of God and serves as what Paul calls a clear sign to them of their destruction. This may be why Jesus says we are the salt of the earth immediately after describing the persecution we will face if we follow him. Isn't that interesting? Living in the world and proclaiming that God is the true king and that all who are in rebellion against him will fall under his eternal righteous wrath. Well, living in such a way, it might just get you that persecution that we read about in verses 10 through 12, that persecution that we are to rejoice in. Lastly, we see that salt fertilizes. Salt fertilizes. I actually think this one, makes the most sense in light of the fact that the earth is that which is being salted. Some ancient civilizations would use salt as a fertilizer. It would help the soil, could help the earth retain water, make fields easier to plow, release minerals for the plants, kill weeds, protect crops from diseases, stimulate growth, and increase yields. It was a good fertilizer. And so we can see that, though this might not be our favorite thing, Uh, That we, as the church, as citizens in the kingdom, are to be like fertilizer. We're to go to spoiling places, barren lands, and live in such a way that brings forth life. We're to take with us the words and works of the gospel so that Christ might be honored. We are to be those who bring life. And light, that's our second metaphor this morning. You see it there in verse 14. Let's read again. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let's deal with that little exhortation first. He says, People don't light a lamp, and you don't light it, bring it out, and then put it under a basket. What is, what is he getting at here? Think of yourself as a child. You are, I don't know, six, seven years old. You are in your bedroom, and your parents have refused to give you a nightlight. They don't want to give you that habit. And so it is pitch black. With the exception of when lightning strikes outside, as a storm rages, quick bursts of light. The windows are shaking, the wind is howling. Woo! Shadows are creeping along the walls. And you really have two options. One, hide under the blanket. Or two, Hide under the bed. Jesus is saying here, similarly, don't hide your light under the bed. If you are a Christian, don't hide under the blanket. Don't hide under the bed. Don't live in fear. You see, the temptation for those who are the light of the world is to fear persecution and to conceal the fact that they follow Jesus. You with me? I think it can be tempting for us as Christians in favor of trying to gain acceptance with the world around us and to not contrast so much with, us, with it that we might, you know, hide ourselves under a blanket. Jesus is saying, do not act in fear. Let your light shine. city on a hill cannot be hidden. The image here is that of, everybody would think of Jerusalem. It's on a hill. Ancient world, there's not light everywhere. We kind of take it for granted that there's light at nighttime. But there are places in this world you can go even now, and you go out there with your, your tent, and you set up, and if you put your fire out, and you turn your phone off, and your flashlight off, you won't be able to see your hand out in front of your face. This is sort of the image we're supposed to get. You're darkened out there, and you raise your eyes at night, And there is the city on the hill It illuminates everything. We must ask ourselves, what is a city on the hill worth if its lights are out? Jesus says that we are light. You are the light of the world. How are we to be like light? Light is one of those images, it's probably the most popular image in Scripture maybe, I don't know, I didn't didn't research that, but uh, God is said to be light, right? 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The psalmist tells us that God wraps himself in light as with a garment. When God God starts the whole of creation, he says, lights, let there be light. Jesus is called the light light of the world. This imagery brings with it the idea of purity and goodness and revelation. Light shows what things are like. And likewise, the church is to show the world what Christ is like with his words and his works. So we follow his example to us. And the goal of all this is laid out for us in verse 16. You see, it, so that they, those who are not in the kingdom, may see your good works and to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the goal of the Christian life glory to the Father who is in heaven. And this isn't that different from the Great Commission. The idea is that we are to go out and to make disciples of all nations. The light of the world is to go into the darkness so that those who are lost in darkness can join us in the marvelous light. Colossians 1. He, that's the Father, this is verse 13, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has delivered us, and He wants to use us so that He might continue to deliver others. The gospel still works. God is still bringing dead people to life, He's still dispelling the darkness with His little lights. I think this was interesting because you know Jesus says elsewhere, I am the light of the world. And the word Christian means little Christs or little anointed ones. And I was just ruminating on this, and I went, interesting, Jesus, the light of the world, says here that you are the light of the world. And so I think in the same way, we're, you know, little Christs, we are like little lights. And Paul picks up on that in Philippians 2. Says, you should be like stars shining in the sky. Show the world what God is like. The interesting things, too, about light. Not only does it make all things visible, and we kind of take it for granted, but just how powerless darkness is against it. I have in my house these little tiny night lights in my bathrooms. So that at night, if somebody wakes up, they can see their way down the hallway and right on into the restroom. And I go, it's this wee little bit of light overwhelms the darkness. You could put yourself in the deepest, darkest cavern where the darkness is at its heaviest, at its most powerful. And you could take a itty bitty match and and that cavern will be illuminated. Darkness is powerless against the light as we go forth in obedience to Christ, it may seem like a losing effort. There may be persecution, reviling, all kinds of evil, physical abuse, maybe even death. But such was the case with Christ. It seemed as if The darkness had overwhelmed the light. And yet, three days would prove that the light of the world could not be put out so easy. Likewise, friends, when we take an eternal perspective on our lives, we recognize that God's plans and purposes always prevail. As we obey God and act as light in this dark world, We cannot fail, even though we be rejected and slandered. You are the light of the world. We are salt, we are light. I think the big picture of this is that we, the church, citizens of the kingdom, are to be distinct from the world. Maybe you guessed that by virtue of the main idea before you. Citizens of the kingdom are to be distinct from world the world. But how does that look? How does it look? I just think right from the jump, when one becomes a Christian, you start to look a little bit strange. You believe that a man, well, you believe that God the Son came into history as a man, becoming what he was not while never ceasing to be what he was, lived a perfect life in the place of his people, died a substitutionary death in the place of his people, and rose from the dead. From where he rules and reigns over all things and is working all things together for his good purposes and for the good of those who love him. And you believe that he's going to return one day uh, on a horse with a sword in his mouth. It's pretty strange. You, you follow Jesus' command to turn from your sins and you say, I'm not going to be the boss of my life anymore. God is going to be the boss of my life. And you get baptized as a declaration of your allegiance to and your union with Jesus. That's a weird thing from the perspective of the world. You you covenant together, you promise together with other Christians that they're gonna hold you accountable for your walk with the Lord and that you are gonna hold them accountable for their walk with the Lord. You make this promise as you join a local church. Then not only will you share your lives with those people, but you'll share a sacred meal with them wherein you eat, and this is strange, the body and blood of the crucified and risen king. Weekly, you will gather on Sunday morning to celebrate the resurrection of your king and you will sing songs to him and you will pray to him and you will, you will listen to words from an ancient book with the expectation that God's Spirit will use those words to change your life and the world. All of this, from the world's perspective, is extremely peculiar. How do we, how do we live differently? Well, it starts with how we spend our Sunday mornings. It starts with our connection to a local church. These, this life that we live together as we come here week after week, we practice those rhythms of grace will shape us into a people that are more Christ-like than, more than a people that are more worldly. What do I mean? Sometimes this is an illustration for uh, the passions of the flesh and the Holy Spirit, but we'll, we'll use the same thing. It's almost like you can think of inside of you there are two dogs uh, a little yippy, annoying dog. It's not really a dog. It's more like a cat. Sorry for those of you that have that particular kind of rat. Um, well, that one will be the flesh. And during, if you just come on Sunday morning, or if you don't come on Sunday morning, what happens is you're feeding that little dog. And then through the week, as you live in the world, and you're not really distinct from you're not really pursuing the Lord, you're feeding that little dog, and all of a sudden that little dog is real, real big. Now, the big dog, bigger dog, we'll call it a golden retriever. We like goldens. Uh, It's it's going to represent the spirit side of you, right? The the Christian side. And if you come to the Lord and you get those rhythms of grace going on Sunday morning and you're studying the Word throughout the week and you are pursuing Christ each and every day, you're feeding that dog. It's going to get big and strong. The idea here is that whichever dog you feed, is the one that's going to grow. I should have just went with you reap what you sow, right? If you, if you sow, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap fleshliness. If you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap that which is spiritual. Question, who, who, how are you feeding yourself? You will live differently and cultivate your strangeness by committing to doing all the strange things we do together here in obedience to the Lord Jesus. But this, as we've said, isn't enough. You can't be the light of the world on Sunday morning and the darkness of the world Monday through Saturday. So, how do we live differently? I have one family in my life who I think does this really well. Uh, I mean, I, I'm constantly, I tell Chelsea, they are so weird, and I love them. They, they, so, you know, they have very strict policies on, like, what movies and media that their children consume and what they consume themselves. And I'm, I'm a big movie guy, you know that. It's not really my thing but I respect it. The idea, they want to dwell on that which is lovely and good and pure and holy and a lot of stuff that's portrayed in movies, I don't know, like violence, uh, isn't supposed to be glorified or meditated on. They have, this is an odd rule, right? They, they, they're, the girls in their family all always wear dresses and the boys always wear a shirt with a collar on it. The purpose of this is to make gender distinctions clear and to promote an atmosphere of both modesty and respect. Something that's not obviously required for the Christian life, but not something that's necessarily bad either. Every time I have conversations with anyone in this family, matters are immediately turned to spiritual things. How am I doing? They've been praying for me. Have I recovered from that ailment? How can they pray better for me? Sins are shared. Advice is given. Encouragement is received, and I always walk away going, "They are so strange," and I'm so encouraged because they are so Christ-like. Not saying you've got to, you know, forsake Harry Potter. I would never say such a thing. I love it. Some of you might need to. I don't know, but or, or that you have to dress a certain way. What I am saying is it is a wise practice for us to think about how many of the world's practices we have adopted by not thinking about them at all. We want to cultivate our Christ-like strangeness. We want the culture of our families and of our lives and of our church to be like the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air cultivate our strangeness. Part of doing this will mean avoiding assimilation. Again, I think we are people tempted toward acceptance, and you can see churches that have succumbed to this particular temptation. In an effort to be uh, more inclusive, the gospel is denied. All faiths are held up as equally valid faith communities. Sins are affirmed as good and applauded. Sermons are about political ideologies and activism. These are our churches that, well, they've lost their saltiness. Not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled upon. Friends, we need to guard ourselves because it is such an easy temptation to want to be liked and approved and accepted. It's a temptation to, to step away from the scriptures and out from under the rule of Christ and back into the world and under the rule of Satan so that the world will embrace us. Some Christians try to straddle the line between the two kingdoms to be winsome. But here's the thing you know, you're never going to be cool enough to be biblically faithful and accepted by somebody who hates the Lord. I mean, I know I tried, and I'm pretty cool. I don't know why there's some laughing out there. might take a hell saying. We want to avoid assimilation. We also want to avoid isolation. This is how sometimes churches and Christians swing the pendulum to the other direction. It's also sinful. They say, all right, we are going to cut ourselves off from all worldly influences. We're not going to interact with those people that don't know the Lord at all. Discussing this passage with a friend of mine this week, Uh, he brought up this article that was an ancient, in an ancient, in an old publication called, was it, His Magazine. And, And one of the authors wrote a satirical piece about the mythical place called Bible Town. And for those Christians who were tired of living in a world sullied and stained by sin, for a fee, they could become members of the Bible Town community. Where? Everything from the street sweeper to the garbage man to the movie theaters to the movies to the governor would all be born-again Christians. You could live in Bible Town and life would be good and you would never have to get around somebody that didn't know Jesus Ever again. Paradise. It's just one problem with that. You are the salt of the salt, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. See, the church exists, this is in our Constitution. We exist to worship and witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is not monastic, it is missionary. We exist to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and glorify Him forever. And how we do that, one of the ways we do that is by endeavoring to reach the lost so that they might join with us in becoming mature and ministering worshipers of God. We want them to see the salt, see the light, see our good works, and be converted and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Again, this is difficult. Taking the gospel to people is basically to tell them, you're wrong and you need to change. It takes a miracle for anyone to believe the gospel. And oftentimes, being light and being salt brings persecution. Oftentimes, being salt to the world feels like you're pouring salt in a wound. Oftentimes being light what means exposing sin. Have you ever woken up in the morning and it's still kind of dark out and then somebody comes into your room and flips the light on? And what do you? Ah, my eyes! Or Maybe if you've ever had an infestation issue, you walk into your kitchen, you flip on the light and all those creepy crawlers, they're gone. They're fleeing the light. This is the reaction of the world light. We're told about it in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's where everybody likes to stop reading, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 18. I'm sniffling a lot. Sorry about that. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe Friends, Jesus was salt and light. He went about healing, speaking wonderful words of truth, and he was killed for it. On the cross, Jesus, the salt of the earth, was salted with the fire of God's just wrath towards sinners. Jesus was crushed beneath the heavy darkness of God's judgment on Calvary, it seemed that the light of the world was extinguished. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Friends, in him we are salt and light. Let us therefore go and live like it be distinct, live different. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that you've given to us. We pray that your spirit would press your word down into our skin that It would get deep into our bones that indeed the promises of the gospel would be graven on our hands and written on our hearts. We ask that we would not stop worshiping you now, but that we would continue throughout the week with songs of joy in our heart. Pray that you would give us opportunities to have gospel conversations this week pray that you would make us distinct from the world and that many, that you might transform many, that you might take them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your Son. In whose name we pray, amen.